Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, hi, hi. Hello, goodbye. And welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is wide, wide screen, screen podcasting thing. I'm, of course, your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Yes, we are back with the second instalment of this digressional meander through the Titanic McCartney 7-inch singles collection. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and check that out. But in that episode, we went through Paul's debut single release of Another Day, all the way up to the Band on the Run singles, aka the beginning of Wings, right the way up to when things really started to heat up for them as a little outfit. We had a lot of good fun, or at least I did, and so we're back again to continue this little jaunt through what I would call the good years of Macca's second band right the way through to the bad years. As per the usual, this isn't going to be anything all too complicated. You know the drill with these Listen With Sam episodes. We're going to be just going through all of the singles, the A-sides, the B-sides of this box set with a whole load of chit-chat from me in between. This is meant to be as close as one can get to chatting with a mate during a little vinyl session with the major difference being that you can't reply, but as you know, I am more than capable for filling in for the both of us. So just sit back and relax as I get to revisit some songs I don't always get to talk about. Maybe I've got some new opinions, or I might go over some old ones, or maybe there's just stuff I haven't had a chance to say yet. So yeah, without any further ado, let's get our box sets ready. Well, okay, unlike regular Listen With Sam episodes where I at least feign a pretense of like putting on the vinyl and like flipping it over and stuff... A, this is a singles episode, so we're not going to be flipping over hundreds of singles mid-episode or anything. But also, uh, I, like the rest of you plebs, could not afford this box set. I don't have one. So instead, we're going to line up our respective streaming services to enjoy some more of Paul's iconically overpriced and questionably quality-controlled material. This is part two of our Listen With Sam, the 7-inch single series. Let's cut to the live feed. One, two, three, let's go. Me. Okay, starting off this episode strong, we have Junior's Farm, aka the first of the Wings non-album rockers that I never really liked at first, but truly came to appreciate a few years into my fandom. Like, we've always talked about McCartney being able, more than capable, of playing the long game with his fans, and this is a prime example of that. It's just a shame that playing the long game with earworms doesn't translate at all to chart success. Anyway, this uh, song came out in uh, the October of 1974, the 25th, and the single sleeve artwork is from the Belgian release. Yeah, this is one of those songs that, whilst I am enjoying them, I am afflicted with a certain sense of guilt. You know, I, I do feel bad that I bashed this one in the past. Well, like, I didn't bash it, that's far too strong, but I certainly never gave it its fair due. And I never, I never really know what I didn't get. But, you know, it's no secret that me seeing Paul doing this one live is the sole factor behind me 
be completely won over. Like, I'm not going to give it an intellectual reasoning or anything like that. It was literally just having Paul blast this one in front of me with all of his power and showmanship, just overwhelming me, and making me like this song with my consent or not. Maybe I thought this one was a bit goofy back in the day. Maybe I didn't like the riff. I don't know. There was just something I didn't get. And that's a shame because this song just rocks. It's awesome. It's easily one of the best non-album singles for both Wings and maybe even Paul in general. I mean, just listening to it now confirms that as a fact. Like, we all know Wings, at the end of the day, are a pop rock or rock pop kind of band, which is a symptom of having Paul as your band leader and not just the bassist. But here with Junior's Farm, we are gifted with a very bog-standard straight-up rocker that isn't simple or trite. Like, there's something heady or deep going on here. We're just rocking out well and efficiently. And Paul does it so well that you honestly wonder why he doesn't do it more often. Interestingly, it seems like a sizable portion of England agreed with my original less than hot take, though, on this one, as it did only make it to number 16 here in the UK, which is, of course, good, but hardly a proper hit and not exactly the follow-up to Band on the Run that was deserved. But, you know, this is really just a stopgap kind of single while they work on much more successful Venus and Mars content. Though, fortunately, it did do a lot better in the US, where it got to number three. Uh, and according to Wikipedia, it was, and I quote, a hit elsewhere. <laughs> Always nice to have that kind of level of detail, isn't it? Of course, Paul played this one at Glastonbury last year, which was an awesome feeling. I love the idea that a bunch of random normies now know about Junior's Farm. <laughs> Because, like, this this shouldn't be more well-known in the Wings canon. I mean, it's not like a forgotten song or anything like that. It is featured on Wings' greatest and everything. But, uh, I don't know, when you, like, do a compilation of McCartney's stuff, the odds of this one being included is slim, I'd say. Oh, and now we gear up for the extra showy ending. The ending to the song is, is just so poor, isn't it? Like, he could have just chosen to do a little quick ending, like, you know, da-da-da-da-down. But no, of course, he's going to revel in just how awesome and badass this song is and straight up refuse to end the song in a prompt fashion. This is Ram levels of rock and roll self-indulgence here. And I'm not going to lie, I love it. And I can only encourage it. Mm. Though, I will say, folks, that this is probably number two on this episode in terms of non-album uh, rock tunes that deserve more love. Right, it's time to flip over the first disc of this episode as we move on to our first B-side with Sally G. Oh yes, Sally G, we meet again. You are one of those songs I've straight up just never been a fan of. And for good reason. Come on, folks, this is just oh so clearly not the peak of Paul's songwriting, is it? I mean, it's fun enough for what it is, but mm, never really been sold. And whilst this might not make sense for some of you, considering how much I like I Lie Around and Country Dreamer, when push comes to shove, 
This one just never made an emotional connection with me, and it's not like my love or jet when I want to like it more than I do. It's just straight up a non-mover, non-shaker. Of course, I actually mentioned this one quite recently on the Japanese Tears episode I did with Chloe Costello. Go and check that out if you haven't already. And this song was recorded uh, around the same time as Denny Lane's own Send Me The Heart during the uh, 74 Nashville sessions that also spawned the A-side Junior's Farm. And Sally G and Send Me The Heart do certainly make an interesting pair, especially as a point of comparison. And I'm going to repeat what I said then, and that is I actually prefer Denny's song here to Paul's. In fact, I much prefer Linda's own Wide Prairie from these sessions to Sally G. And is that heresy? It probably is, but it's the truth. I mean, this is objectively not even the best in terms of, like, Paul's pastiches of, like, other genres. You know, this is Amaka attempting to broaden the palette, uh, broaden his repertoire, and coming out with very subpar results. I mean, I don't think I'm being too harsh. I mean, it was a B-side, and since it's never been featured on any compilation to date, and since Paul's never played it live, I don't think he holds it in that high regard either. You know, when you listen to Send Me The Heart, the contrast is so stark, you get a very sincere, natural, and well-worn track that befits his folksy, bluesy background. Whereas Paul just doesn't have any of that. It feels a little forced and insincere to the point whereby I can never like, get into it. It just feels like this is Paul doing a country song. What the letter G stood for But I know for sure it wasn't good And I'll give it the lowest possible grade for a pass, folks. You know, I'll meet you in the middle. You know, this whole song is just an excuse for him to exercise a country-western demon out of his creative soul. And whilst I would always encourage Paul to keep putting himself out there and trying new things, this isn't exactly a new thing he's trying here. You know, it, it, it's stuff that's been done and done better before. I just don't like the results of this experiment. And, you know, besides... In a similar vein to, you know, the This One video, kind of aping iconic George Harrison-isms a bit too much, whenever I hear this track, I do just think to myself, hey, Macca, can we just leave the generic, boring country drivel to ring away? Right, on to something a little more me this time around, folks. Yeah, I think that's safe to say. With our second single of the day, and ah, oh, it is Listen to What The Man Said and immediately I'm already jiving and bopping in my chair and wondering why I don't listen to this song more often. Overall, Venus and Mars, I don't give enough credit and listen to it and give it its due diligence. I'm probably going to put on Venus and Mars right after this, folks. Oh my gosh, this song is just shamelessly fun and upbeat, isn't it? And I'll tell you why it's so upbeat and enjoyable, and that's because it's so recognisably a happy, feel-good McCartney tune, while still maintaining a kind of semi-serious, earnest, there's a meaning behind this song kind of feel to it. 
you know, there's a distinct feeling that even if that isn't true at all, that there is, uh, you know, something a little, a little deeper here, and it's not a completely frivolous songwriting exercise. You know, when you've got a phrase as ambiguous and as uh, Freudian as listen to what the man said, like, how can you not assume that there's some deeper meaning to all of this? Oh, uh, before we get too carried away, uh, this track came out on the 16th of May 1975, and the sleeve artwork is from the Australian release. You know, actually, now that we're recording, some of them have just realised, and you will have just not heard it now also, but the only difference between the single edit and the album version is that they edit out the slightly problematic uh, like New Orleans impression that Paul does at the beginning of the song. Don't worry, folks, Paul's not going to get cancelled or anything. He's still a Beatle. But yeah, quite a small edit there. Not the most drastic one ever, especially when compared to some of the other uh, single versus album edits that we're going to be seeing on this episode but yeah I am actually interested in doing an episode on looking at all the single versions versus album versions as well as some of the other mixes of each song like there are, there are, there are loads of recording session mixes and unreleased mixes and like weird b-side mixes that are out there and I really do want to collate all of that together it's it's like it's I feel like it's not meaty enough for a proper episode, but far too big and expansive for, like, the Patreon side series. I don't know, but it's like I certainly want to do. You know, it shouldn't be a shock to anyone after listening to the Revolve episode that that's something I'm interested in. But yeah, it's mad, folks, that this song, this, this New Orleans pastiche, is where you find one of the best, most uh, riffy, most iconic wings riffs at all like fuck me is the guitar part as good as it is underrated that is infectiously catchy and maca just makes it sound so simple and effortless i assume it's maca it sounds like a maca riff maybe jimmy wrote it but i feel like if he did that would be a little more well known Oh, just as we close out here, we just have to give a little shout-out to uh, Tom Scott Sax. It's another highlight of the track. I just love how horn-dominated and horny the whole, like, band-on-the-run through Speed of Sound era is, and part of that is this guy's brilliant playing. Though we are going to move on now to our second, second side now with Lovin' Song. And this is such a cool song to have as a B-side. It's always been a low-key favourite of mine from the Vincent Mars era. And as a package, again, it's a wonderfully stark contrast between the shamelessly upbeat listen to what the man said. Like, if Paul is still consistently doing all of these genres, then you should really get the most out of it and, like, have them clash against each other and have these really fun, playful mixes. And here they're, they're doing that, and I'm so glad they are. Oh, this this intro is so cinematic. Like I love how they go to the to to, to the second little verse here. Like, oh my god, you're just so drawn in, and you want to know what the release is going to be here. And it's actually quite surprising. And this movement here really caught me off guard the first time. Oh, this is still as 
emotive and as intense as ever. You know, this is one of the, one of the very first times in listening to McCartney that I felt like he was going into a a, a place of total seriousness and earnestness. You know, in place of any cutesiness whatsoever. And in many ways, this track kind of predicts the increasingly mature nature of the love songs he will do into the late 80s and 90s. Oh, man. I don't know what it is, but that phrase, happiness in the homeland, you know, like hands across the water or something. I've always found it to be one of the most evocative lines in Paul's entire run. Like... It's basically Paul's mantra at this point, isn't it? You know, happiness in the homeland. You know, for Lennon, happiness was a warm gun, but for Paul, happiness is the the domestic lifestyle. And here we have him doing an ode to that, but not in a wry or cheeky or fun way. He's basically saying, no, no, this is legitimately, seriously what I want. And it's great to see him, like, double down on that and, you know, give it its, you know fair credit what sucks though is that despite the whole Venus and Mars project being an album to create songs for a live show Loving Song has never been performed by Wings and if Wings didn't do it then you know Solo Paul is never going to touch it and so this is one of the great lost live McCartney slash Wings tracks I, I think I actually covered that on a recent Patreon episode a while back Oh, folks, what an incredible song. This is arguably one of the most underrated in McCartney's entire back catalogue. And, oh, Linda's synths. Got to give a little shout out to them as well, just before we move on to our next track. Oh, and fading in now, we are on to Letting Go. Oh, this was clearly the best possible album track single at this point. You know, this is so obviously an awesome, fun single, a a great little rocker. We're grooving in. It's immediately catchy and mysterious. You want to be drawn into this one. We are off to the races. This was released on the 4th of October 1975 in the US and the 18th of October 1975 here in the UK. And the artwork for the singles box set is from the German release. Now, I know that this is basically a retread of Let Me Roll It, And the fact that they both have let in the title doesn't help with said comparisons. But regardless, this is easily one of the best do-overs Paul has ever done. I don't think I'm particularly unique here when I say that I actually prefer this to Let Me Roll It. And I'm glad that he's actually bumped Let Me Roll It from his live set lists and put this in instead. And, you know, clearly Paul had a rock sound that he was wanting to achieve in this period for this live great tour that was just over the horizon. And as far as I'm concerned, this second attempt is more successful. This track peaked at 41 here in the UK and number 39 in the US, which means it hardly turned any heads, but I'm still sure it earned a few people plenty of money. I don't get why it didn't connect with audiences though. I feel like this is the obvious single. You know, maybe, I, maybe we as fans have to accept that maybe Paul is actually just better at connecting with audiences through those pop songs, through those ballads, than with rock. We're going to see a lot of rock singles kind of stumble this episode, next episode, and it's just such a shame. 
Uh, this is another one of these songs on this uh, box set that's going to have uh, a different edit from what you've normally heard. This is another single mix. And this isn't as simple as, say, the Love is Strange one from, from the last episode or with Listen to What the Man Said, where they just chopped off the beginning. Instead, we have a straight up different edit here for a different format that Paul and the band would have had to have sat down with and given the same attention and care as said aforementioned album mix. I mean, this thing is at least a minute shorter than the album version, with it uh, trimming off some of the start and parts of the instrumental segments. However, what I found most interesting is that they don't just always take stuff away. And if you actually go back and listen to the start of the song again, you can actually hear a little bit of extra organ just to help it little uh, start with more of a pop, you know, immediately. I do like that. I do like slight variations like this. And a, a little smashing of organ on top is exactly the kind of thing I'm after. Something else that's also pretty cool about this song, something that's hardly ever brought up, actually, is the fact that Jeff Britton, of all people, is the drummer here. Like, his stint with Wings was incredibly short, but for him to feature on both the Junior's Farm single and this means he still made a decent impression on the Wings catalogue. Quite a longer fade out there as we go into the B side now. Oh, and it's with, oh, with great delight I get to say that we are now listening to You Gave Me The Answer. And no prizes for guessing that I do indeed give my heart to this number. It is peak Tin Pan Alley McCartney, it's peak granny music, and you'd need a heart of stone not to be won over the moment he starts playing this. Uh, as you can hear right now, one of the best bits about this song is that even though it's a very simple tune, it still has a little bit of mad Professor McCartney wizardry to it, because this does sound like it came from the 30s or 40s or 50s. You know, he goes the extra mile uh, in the production to make it sound era accurate, and that is awesome. I love the vocal here, how it's all like crackly and it feels like it's gone through a really poor speaker. You know, if Paul is gonna go full on uh, corny throwaway, go for effect pastiche, then this is the best result of that really. <laughs> We actually don't get anything as outright goofy and as old-fashioned as this till English Tea from Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. Please do correct me if I've missed one out. But that makes no goddamn sense whatsoever. Like, what happened to Paul after this release that made him not want to kind of do any more of this shtick? Like, I'd take a 20s pastiche over another mediocre ballad in a heartbeat. And we know he could bash stuff like this out with just as much ease as a ballad, so why not? Maybe he just got it all out of his system here. Uh, maybe the music wasn't appropriate for him after the recent death of his dad, Jim McCartney? Who knows? But still, like, this kind of... McCartney old throwback is one of his best subgenres, and it's a shame he doesn't mine it more for what it's worth. Still, at least a few more people got to hear it with this being the B-side and all. And next up, folks, we come to our first two-title McCartney song of the episode with Venus and Mars slash Rock Show. 
This was released on the 27th of October 1975 in the US and 28th of November 1975 here in the UK. The single sleeve is of the Belgian origin. Of course, this opening Venus and Mars segment has always been the highlight for me. It's my preferred half. I mean, I can oh so vividly still remember the first time I was going to check out this album. Uh, it was the first one after Band on the Run I'd ever listened to, and I was totally nervous about what I was going to hear. And the feeling of utter relief and contentment I felt when this started was so intense. And it basically gave me the bravery to carry on with his whole discography. And as you heard just at the start there, there, there was a slight little edit there. This does come in slightly quicker. Not all of the edits uh, for this come in rock show. Uh, yeah, obviously, this is going to be one of those big single edits. And nearly two minutes of this track are cut from the runtime. Uh, mostly from this segment, we come to the rock show part of the song. And I know that for the majority of you out there, this is when the song actually kicks into gear. But for me, this is actually the weaker half of the tune. But, but, that doesn't mean I don't like it. It's just that I prefer kind of kooky, spacefaring, acoustic pool as opposed to big stadium rock pool. Actually, continuing with the theme of Venus and Mars essentially being a better version of Band on the Run or Band on the Run Part 2 in the way that Letting Go is a better version of Let Me Roll It. This is basically an improved retread, a do-over of Jet. And I mean that in the best possible way for, you know, as we established on the last episode, I don't hate Jet nearly as much as I make out. And so all I mean is that this is a better, heavier, chugalug McCartney hard rocker. You know, McCartney clearly liked certain things from the band on the run sessions and either consciously or subconsciously did them again and once again for the better. A lot of it also has to do with variety. Like, not only do we get the Venus and Mars segment to break up this very long rock segment, but we also have the epic closer, which is, you know, it's its own individual segment as well. You know, in the sense that there are three movements to this song, actually, uh, you can also compare it to the, the title track of Band on the Run as well. Although, ironically, with this one, the middle rock segment was stretched out for longer and was given, uh, you know, its, its, its full due. And actually, now for me, it's the, it's the weakest part of the song. Oh, oh, the irony. Strangely enough, this third Venus and Mars single is another middle performer. Admittedly, it did get to 12 in the US, which is hardly middling, but rather oddly, it didn't even chart at all here in the UK. Like, the Venus and Mars singles really didn't continue that you know, string of success established by Band on the Run, and that is a shame. You know, we've had one smash and two fizzles, but we're worryingly starting to look like London Town era here, and I thought this was the height of Wings. I guess I was wrong. Ugh. Keeping up the established order of things now, we come to another B-side shock horror, but this isn't any ordinary B-side. This is Magneto and Titanium Man. And in an instant, I am overcome with the familiar, dorky, goofy sense of joy and wonder I get whenever I hear this song. Like, this is really one of those pieces of media like Jurassic Park or certain Disney movies or musicals that 
really just allowed me to feel like a kid again. And hey, I didn't even hear this song when I was an actual kid. It's just that powerful. And you know, because of its comic book subject matter, in many ways, this track does kind of naturally rub shoulders with, you know, Paul's songs for children, like Mary Had a Little Lamb, the Frog Song, or All Together Now. And it is comfortable in that company. Though, with the progression of pop culture, comic book characters are now serious adult subject matter. So there is a bit of a dissonance there. But at least it proves once again that Paul was ahead of the curve on another part of pop culture, and he was liking comic books before it was cool. Of course, I said this back in the past uh, when I first reviewed the album, but I'm going to say it again now. Uh, with the Fox Studios being bought out by Disney, uh, the X-Men, along with their nemesis Magneto, are now uh, in the property of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know all the superhero movies that they do. And... I know this doesn't mean much to a lot of you, but despite how terrible those films are, I do still have a soft spot for the Disney Marvel superhero franchise, and they full-on need to use this song. And actually, they, they haven't even introduced Titanium Man into the MCU yet. You know, he's quite a relatively obscure character, uh, and I actually suspect that Paul only really knows about him because of the random comic books he had at that time. But yeah, this song would be perfect to introduce Titanium Man to the wider world. Uh, also, uh, as you may have heard earlier or not heard, this track contains one of the most often misheard lyrics in all of the McCartney canon. Uh, oh, actually, it's just coming up now. Uh, let's just listen. <laughs> yeah, I remember once thinking that that line was, we went to town with the library. I'm sure many of you do as well. And of course, the line actually is, we went to town in our livery, which means their uniforms or costumes. You know what? Venus and Mars, these singles, are three for three in terms of choosing ace album tracks as the B-sides. I mean, it makes more sense for this to be a B-side than, you know, Venus and Rock Show does to be an A-side. But yeah, the point is, is that this is the exact kind of fun, carefree, goofy experience that is perfect B-side material. However, what this song does have in its favour over the last two singles uh, is that regardless of how silly this song is, it is still a rocker, meaning that both A and B sides were rock songs. And now if that doesn't scream Venus and Mars making up for lost time, then I really don't know what does. Moving ever onwards, and we now come to another absolutely massive single here with Silly Love Songs. And I just want to say right now how awesomely strange this opening is. Like that loping, scraping, biomechanical, holy, artificial sound is so unique, not just with Paul and Wings, but music in general. Like, it certainly doesn't drop any hints as to where the song is going, to the point whereby, if you haven't heard it in a while, you might even recognise it. But yeah, obviously here now, we kick into the main song proper and we're off to the races. And it's just one hell of a disco beat, isn't it? Like with some dance tracks, I could find that they're a little too prohibitively focused on the dance floor element. And it makes them less enjoyable as quote-unquote radio hits or in your earphones. But here, this is the perfect synthesis of funky at home and funky on the town. God, that was a lot to talk about right at the start there. But yeah, this was released on the 1st of April, 1976, and the single sleeve artwork is from the French release. In terms of chart success, of course, this was a number one smash hit in the States. That famously left the number one spot and then regained it back a week after. But oddly, here in the UK, 
it only got to number two. And so I wanted to find out what took its rightful spot. Well, first of all, it should be pointed out that the week before here in the UK, the Beatles' own Yesterday was number one, meaning that Paul was already earning a sizable chunk of change in this period and was indeed able to capitalise on the Beatles' revival craze of the time. But sadly, it wasn't enough. And in the weeks after the release of Silly Love Songs, the number one in the UK was taken up by Save Your Kisses For Me by Brotherhood of Man, which I've never heard, and Fernando by ABBA, which I have. I've always kind of seen this song to be a a sister track with, uh, with a little luck, in the sense that they are both peaks of Paul's I'm done with writing rock songs for the time being phase, aka the the fourth, kind of fifth of Wings tenure. And with Paul being Paul, of course these songs are arguably amongst the very best few songs that Wings ever did. Like, you know, the band has done this giant world tour and has established itself as this incredible rock band with a rock act. And here, you know, he kind of does a little curveball and says, no, no, I'm also gonna be focusing on disco music as well. And it, somehow it fits into that rock set list seamlessly as well. Like, oh, Paul, you're just so good at balancing and spinning all of these plates, aren't you? course the go-to rant with this song is that the bass line is overrated and talked about far too much in a similar vein to the guitar solo from my love and whilst i do think that there are legitimately other bass moments in wings history that do not get the credit they deserve like goodnight tonight even magneto and titanium man that we just heard at the end of the day of course the bass line is iconic for a reason and even now, as someone who's trying to learn the bass themselves, it is even more impressive to me. I just wish that other bass lines would get a word in edgeways in the conversation every once in a while. And obviously now we are at what is my favourite part of the song, which is this increasingly complex and intricate series of harmonies. Crucially, the whole song up to this point has not been a silly love song. But where it goes into the Paul and Linda back and forth, that is when it actually does become the silliest and loveliest of love songs. Sticks the landing, mind you, and actually just completely wins over your heart. It's one of the best things in the entire Wings discography. It just swallows you up whole, you know. I just love how unashamedly lovey-dovey it is. And he returns to it now, and he goes even deeper, even more emotive, even more uh, cloying and playing with your heartstrings. Like, how can you not be won over by this? Again, how can you not? Now, whilst some people would argue that the heights of the Linda Harmony kind of guidance and collaboration would be in something from the Ram album, as, as far as I'm concerned, this is probably the very best uh you know like i just think, think she's so gorgeous here and ah like for her to add this this angelic vocal so deep into wing's career is such a wonderful achievement for her like ah oh, this, this, this is peak and then you get denny on top as well it's even better and you know you get that sense that 
Uh, even though the band is still all together at this point, we still know who the most important three are here. Like, our peak uh, trio of wings there. And we're right back into it, you know. For one last time, you know, Paul wouldn't be, be able to resist giving us this thrill one last time. But yeah, folks, this is one of the real heavy hitters. And as we're coming to the end, let's just take a moment to fully appreciate that this song proved again that Paul was cool and popular and indeed number one after the Beatles. But it wouldn't be long before he would actually be even this success. And now, folks, with the sound of that bacon frying, it is time for us to come to the most B-side of B-sides, except for B-side to C-side. Yes, this is Cook of the House. Of course, this is widely known amongst the fandom as the quote-unquote worst song on Wings at the Speed of Sound, and one of the worst in the entire Wings catalogue, but probably more so as the one where we hear Linda sing. Yes, that is her singing right now, folks. And yeah, it's not exactly in the top half of Wings' releases, but I don't think it's worth the derision it gets. Now, I know like, this is going to sound like horrible pandering and really patronising, but we have to stop judging this vocal like it's being sung by a true or real singer-performer. There, I said it. Linda was many things, but singer and performer was not one of them. She was a photographer, activist, food tycoon, wife, mother, who also did some singing and performing on the side. And judging this song on that, frankly, amateur scale, then I think the result is perfectly fine. This is fun for what it's worth. Come on. I mean, it's so goofy and obviously silly that I feel like it kind of dodges most... Uh, legitimate criticism. I mean, it's literally the B-side for a silly love song. I don't think this is meant to be taken seriously. We actually did mention a whole lot of bass in the A-side for this song, though. And of course, here we have to bring up the fact that this is the first song in Paul's catalogue where he played Bill Black's, aka Elvis's bassist's upright bass. Uh, it's referenced and shown off countless times in the future, like the little trigger of Paul's that it is. And you know what? The baseline in this song is actually a lot better than it ever deserves to. And we know Paul always puts more effort into other people's baselines than his own, uh, except for the A-side to this track. But I just love that he's doing that shtick for Linda. I mean, that's just so heartwarming for me. Come on, that wasn't so bad, was it, folks? I mean, just like Seaside Woman, we have a track that is still backed and performed by a very tight rock band and it certainly carried it through with Seaside Woman and I think it certainly carries us through here. And with those gorgeous opening notes we are on to the next single now with Let Em In. It was released on the 23rd of July 1976 and the single artwork in the box set is from the German release. Rather similarly to Silly Love Songs, this track was a number two hit here in the UK and number one on two US charts. Neither of those charts, sadly, were Billboard, which is the one, you know, I'm sure Paul actually cared about. 
but those were number ones nonetheless, and they were on the uh, Cashbox and Adult Contemporary charts. That would have irked Paul, but you know, money's money, man. You're still you're still number one somewhere. Uh, you know, he still has some big classics ahead of him at this point, but in many ways, this is more of a portentous omen of things to come as, you know, Paul appearing on other charts, particularly the adult contemporary chart, is something that's going to become all the more common as the story goes on. Oh, I love the little door creaking effect there. I never mentioned it before on the original episode, but that's just more of that kooky mad Professor Paul just throwing something in for, for the sake of it. And it's, oh, absolutely love it. Here we have those iconic pipes. Uh, not not the most iconic pipes of this decade for Paul, but uh, yeah, definitely ones that have a special place in my heart. Yeah, how do I feel about this one? I've always been a very sentimental person, I guess, especially when it comes to family. And so, of course, this would always hit me right in the feels whenever I've listened to it. Now, from the very first time I heard it, it's always been one of the top tier McCartney ones for me. It doesn't matter whether the people in the song are from my family or not, or Paul's family or not, or from the Everly Brothers family or not. It's always just made me feel very warm and homely and snug as a bug. It's got a very classy, classic feeling to it. It also feels very distinctly British without being like, over the top or in your face, like something like Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey. I am sat here wondering though, what is the better song out of this and Silly Love Songs? And I am kind of leaning towards Let Em In. Like, obviously Silly Love Songs is the more enjoyable and fun tune, but as you can hear now, this is easily the more resonant, uh, the more emotive song. It's a lot more melodic, and it does feel a lot more timeless. I think that works to its advantage as well. Like. Of course, the, the harmony segment in Silly Love Songs is the undisputed high point of both tracks, but on the whole, on average, I'm more engaged with this here. Of course, um, I think I mentioned this in my Glastonbury recap episode. Uh, I know it, it was definitely discussed in the lost episode that I did, uh, but that uh, never got recorded. But this song has been used here uh, for a, um, in the UK on a commercial or ad for something called the Postcode Lottery. It's a, a pretty lengthy ad campaign for, you know, a lottery based on your area code. And it's been going on for a couple of years now, but yeah, it seems to have ingrained itself in the public consciousness enough uh, for when Paul played this live, it had a much more larger than expected like sing-along aspect to it you know people knew this one they're like oh my god it's the song from the postcode lottery no everyone it's the Paul McCartney song from 1976 something you do miss if you don't have a good speaker or earphones are all of these closing vocals here like 
you, 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 you get Danny Lane singing the main vocal line here and you get the the the, 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 the do do do's and this like little radio effect it creates this really trippy ending it really isn't anything else like anything in the song it's not a com- complete change of direction but it's still a, like again a nice fun mad professor McCartney touch like, what why uniquely little outro there and there's the dramatic close and here we go oh wow a rather unfamiliar intro to this song now uh, this is not the one I'm used to this is Beware My Love the Stone Cold classic and of course we are now into the iconic slow burner intro that is just oh it's so fucking good uh, it, it's, it's very similar to uh, Silly Love Songs actually in, in the sense that it really doesn't play its hand or hint at what's going to be going on with the rest of the song uh, it's it's great drama and makes the rest of the track feel extra exciting and extra w- rewarding also but we have cut in a little bit earlier there there was definitely an edit there for this single edit as we can hear now as well Paul is not singing and as shown in songs like say Love is Strange although ironically not the version we heard on the last episode any song that delays Paul's vocal is always going to be more impactful, as you can hear there. And it's teased out masterfully. Like, he just does these little grunts first there. Oh, it's so dramatic. Go on, Paul. Oh, this is just a stone-cold classic. Everyone knows it. And it easily could have been the A-side of a hypothetical third single if they wanted it to have been. I mean... It's surely good enough, right? Or is this another case of like us McCartney fans thinking that because it's Paul going reasonably hard that it's actually more badass than it is? Maybe the rest of the rock world isn't that impressed with this one. Who knows? But either way, this is a song that every Wings fan likes to endlessly talk about. And for good reason, because it is the great Lost Wings rocker. In a sense, like, yeah. it's lost in the sense that the, the wider public don't really know it uh, or remember it. But, you know, it is a B-side to a reasonably successful single, and it was featured on a smash hit live album. So it's not, like, lost in the way that, say, Girls' School is. You know, even Julius Farm, like I say, was on Wing's Greatest. But still, the average Joe is unlikely to know about this one. And I think that's because it it is a B-side. Like, it's just instantly been assigned a lesser status than it deserves because it's just been chucked on the B-side of a single that was made on an album that was rushed out in between tours. It, it kind of shows a lack of thought. It's a shame, really. Let's talk about the edit though, because a lot of the edits we've had on this series so far have been quite drastic to, to, to make things fit into the limited amount of space you have on a 7-inch single. 
uh, you know, it has to physically fit enough grooves on a regular seven-inch side. And normally that means, you know, you get a considerable chunk of the song missing, resulting in quite a different experience and emotional journey for the song. But here, that really isn't the case, because we go from six minutes and 28 on the record, which is very long, seemingly too long for a seven-inch single, surely. And here, you know, you'd be thinking, oh, okay, maybe we'll like go down to like four minutes or something. No, it's it's only six minutes and one second. We've only lost 27 seconds. Now, I thought a cut like that would have to be far more significant. And, and so if we can have singles that are six minute and one second, why are we not just, just doing minor edits with the other ones? It seems oddly uh, harsh on the previous singles. I don't know what's going on there. Maybe a lot of the other previous singles are more or less radio singles. They are designed to be shorter for a radio uh, production, you know, for to be played multiple times in a day, yada, yada, yada. Uh, whereas maybe this one is specifically just meant to be part of the single experience. You know, um, the B-side for uh, Coming Up's quite long because, you know, you get coming up live and lunchbox odd socks so maybe on the b side audio fidelity and quality is less important so you can put a longer track on anyway let's just talk about how awesome this song is um this vocal it's 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 truly unassailable it's always had a place in my heart because there's a faux stammer you know when he goes beware that's just great um you know paul really just adds such a rock and roll spirit here and not in the and, and not in the way that he like panics on London Town on the next album just throws on I've had enough here he just taps into that long tall Sally rooftop uh, ram session rock, raw rock and roll energy and it's so thrilling and it really makes the song stand out on the album all the prouder oh, and it shouldn't be a B-side it really shouldn't and right there now, that is where Sand Ferry Anne should be playing. You know, you've got a lot. No, but it, no, Sam, it is not time for Sand Ferry Anne. No, it is not. It is time for us, seeing as how we're at the halfway point now, to take a little break for a while and crack on with this week's housekeeping. So, what do we have in terms of news for today, folks? Well, first of all, we had Record Store Day here in the UK. It took place on the 22nd of April 2023. And, of course, I was suffering from FOMO, the fear of missing out. I was worried that I was not going to get my copy of Red Rose Speedway. That was being first made available on UK Record Store Day. Though I was not ready to believe the rumours that it was going to have a reprint later in the year. I thought I may as well strike whilst the iron is hot. And I went to my very first record store day. It was a very fun experience actually. The lead up was quite stressful. I remember ringing up several shops in the local area. Most of them only had one copy. The one in Birmingham Centre had six copies. And my plight was... Well, shall I go to the one that's going to have less people 
uh, and less competition but less copies to sell or do I go to the one with more copies but more competition and I settled on going to the local option I went to Revolution Records in Warsaw Town Centre and I left quite early I thought I'll get there for 8 they're going to open at 9 or get there for 9 they're going to open at 10 but either way I was going to be there an hour early and I got there for about 10 past and already the queue was absolutely massive I made a bunch of friends in the queue uh, and I was going to be like asking people up and down the queue whether they were going to be getting Red Rose Speedway and they advised me against that they were like no no don't let people know you want to buy something because they might buy it because they you, you've let them know it's valuable yada 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 and I knew there was only one copy of Red Rose Speedway here I'd rung the guys the day before and they said they were they they couldn't put it aside for me that's not the record store day policy I'm aware so I just had to try my luck and you know the queue eventually went down I think I was queuing total for about 90 minutes I'm not going to be doing that Tom Hum Yardy thing of like camping out the night before for a record or anything like that but yeah after about 90 minutes an hour and a half in the queue I got there they let about four of us through at any one time and I I would admit right now I walked a lot faster than everyone else kind of into a jog and a run and I got there and right at the back on the top shelf tucked away in the corner was a copy of Red Rose Speedway that blue obi strip would not escape my sights and thankfully I got it I was so happy uh, did I stick around and have a look at any other releases no I just got the hell out of there I got my one copy in out like the SA fucking S it was absolutely brilliant and I'm going to be talking about my copy of Red Rose Speedway on the next Patreon bonus episodes uh, you know that's a nice little place where I can talk about things like half speed mastering once again very interesting stuff but folks if you got your uh, copy of Red Rose Speedway let me know what you think of it as well drop me an email at bumcarnacard at gmail.com something else for you all out there today on the day that I'm recording this there's actually going to be a Red Rose Speedway listening party so I'm not sure how much use it's going to be by the time you hear it but yeah um at 5pm British Standard Time, 12pm uh, Eastern Time and 9am Pacific Time, there's going to be a listening party of Red Rose Speedway. I'm already signed up and signed in right now. Uh, I, I guess it's just going to be a bunch of people sat in front of their computers listening to Red Rose Speedway, typing on a forum. I guess that could be really fun. I don't know. This is my very first listening party. I'll let you all know how it went. Then we have another important date to be adding to our calendars, June 15th of this year to be precise, as there is going to be, as part of the Tribeca Film Festival, a Storytellers with Paul McCartney event. Paul is going to be joined in live conversation by Conan O'Brien. Uh, the two have already done an interview before, back in the 2000s for Conan's show, I believe. But here... Rather like Paul has done in the past, he is going to be in a big live theatre talking about his latest book. Uh, in this case, 1964, Eyes of the Storm, which is going to be published on June 13th, so two days before. The conversation is going to be recorded and will later be made available as a podcast episode of Conan's own show, Conan O'Brien, 
needs a friend. Uh, of course, sadly, I will not be able to attend, but as you may have guessed, with this being uh, taking place in New York, Skylar Moody, our eyes in the field, our person on the ground will be there, so I'm sure we'll probably talk about it in a future episode. Looking forward to that. And finally, we're going to talk about one of the most important and passionately discussed issues that is taking place right now on Twitter and various McCartney slash Beatles Facebook pages. And that is the recent proliferation of AI-generated content and music. AI, of course, is artificial intelligence, aka the new hot topic for the modern era. It's computer thinking, computer learning, and it can create stuff now. And we were all worried at first that robots and computers would replace, you know, proper physical jobs. But what about these technotrons replacing jobs that have already been completed, such as songs? Well, the supercomputing power of these modern marvels can now recreate vocals from artists. These uh, programs will listen to thousands and thousands of hours of an artist singing and talking and be able to produce vocals from them that they never sang. This means we could have young Paul sing the song of an older Paul or vice versa or go full on necromancy and have a dead person like John or George sing from beyond the grave or have them rap to a vanilla ice song. Now we open this episode with an AI generated version of Paul singing working class hero which is absolutely insane. I thought it sounded pretty spectacular, it sounded pretty flawless and seamless. Yes, you can tell there are limitations. The AI can't generate like random little quirks and flourishes that singers create. You know, just little woos or yeah, you know, anything. You know, mistakes, flaws. But as a perfect recreation of what a Paul vocal for Working Class Hero sounds like, I think it was pretty spot on. And we're going to close out the new segment with another one, another AI one, and then we'll have another AI track as the secret song at the end of the episode. And I do hope you take the time to listen to all of them, folks, because arguably this is one of the biggest shifts in music ever, in art ever. And there are a lot of people with a lot of opinions And honestly, that's the best thing ever for me personally, because I would love to hear what all of you out there think about all of this AI stuff. Let's get a conversation going. Drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Maybe we'll even do an episode about it in the future. But this is something I'm very excited about. Why is that? Well, since I don't have the same level of reverence and borderline worship for this music, as I'm sure many of you do, it results in me having a level of curiosity and oh, like almost borderline manifest destiny. That means I do not see these tech demos as anything other than fun experiments. Like, is it really that profane to have a computer imitate Ringo singing Imagine or having George and John duet on another day? Maybe it is. Who's to say? And of course, you know, one man's holy site is another man's future oil pipeline location. So I do get that some of you out there will take offence to this. But 
It doesn't mean I will. <laughs> the door is wide open now at this point anyway. The horse has bolted. The train has left the station. There is no going back. So let's not try and stand in the way of progress. You know, I don't want to sound too much like the creator of Jurassic Park moments before the dinosaurs started eating everyone, but who are we to stand in the light of discovery? You know, perhaps tech innovations like this may one day lead to further creations that benefit art in the future. Maybe this is the first step in a really positive direction. Like, if a few blasphemous Beatle AI songs are the price we have to pay for a device that will actually say, let me sing in key without having to learn or practice, I for one say it's worth it. And besides, a lot of the YouTube comments are actually very positive about this stuff, so maybe it's less controversial than I thought. But yeah, overall, let's, let, me, let me just say, calm down everyone, calm down jean jackets. The future's happening right now, so... Please, be a part of it. I'd rather you be here than not. Anyway, now that the news is over, let's quickly crack on with the plugs. To get in contact with the show, drop us an email at pormacconnypod at gmail.com. Thank you to Pete Grierson as well, who sent in a very kind email indeed. That was very touching. It meant a lot to me when I read it. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail. I'm not going to embarrass Pete, but he said some very kind, very supportive things, and... Uh, that kind of outreach and support is always appreciated. So thank you very much for that, Pete. To follow us on our Twitter page, follow us uh, at McCartneyPod. That's at McCartneyPod. For our blog, check out paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or anything or Paul McCartney Podcast. Please leave us a review wherever you are, whether it's likes, stars, thumbs up, comment, sharing, Whatever it is, it always helps. And, of course, please consider joining our Patreon page as ever. Of course, Patreon, as you know, is the platform by which you can support independent content creators such as myself. But it's not just a gimme. You do get your money's worth. You get loads of bonus Paul Ornithing content, including lost and unreleased episodes and exclusive Patreon vlog. You get early access to uh, episodes of the show, to episodes of Mac It In Your Attic, uh, access to the video feed, scripts for the show. You get access to a lot of stuff. Let's just say that. So if you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoy what I'm doing here at Paul or Nothing and you want to give back, maybe say the price of a coffee once a month and you want to get some bonus Paul or Nothing content, you, know, you can't quite get your fix, then please consider joining our wonderful Patreon family. A family of people already including... Mr. P.J. Bellchamber, Stephen Lanham, Isabella Diaz, Stephanie Bradley, Louise Overberg, John Carp, Brian Brigman, Annie McNeil, Percy Thrillington, David Stabersky, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P., Broderick Harper, Chris Atkinson, Mr. Bowie, Mr. Bowie, Richard Biddington, my editor, Teresa Brader, Stuart Cook, Cheryl McCoy, Lou DiLonardo, Robert A. Carabelli, Warren Butson, Cheryl McCoy, and my man, Matt Phillips. Right, let's have another listen to some AI-generated content, and then we'll go right back to the live feed. Let's go. And now we press on to the first single from this episode that I actually don't own on vinyl. I need to get on eBay and have a look at that. This is, maybe I'm amazed, live from Wings Over America. 
It was released on the 4th of February 1977, and the single sleeve artwork from the box set is from the Japanese release. Of course, the elephant in the room with this song is that it's kind of the too little too late consolation prize that made up for the fact that Paul neglected to or was possibly prevented from releasing this as a single in conjunction with the original McCartney album all the way back in 1970. And you know what? It was admittedly a pretty nice thing to do on his part, as the majority of his more stalwart fans would be clamouring for this kind of semi-collectible release, especially considering the B-side as well, we'll get to that shortly. And this would also be a good way to introduce this song to new fans for the first time as well. You know, the, you know, it's been what, like six, seven years since this song came out? And you know, that's like a whole Beatles generation for Paul, so it's definitely worth keeping this one out there, especially if he's still doing it live and it's still the centerpiece that it is. Here we go, Jimmy McCulloch doing Henry's part here. And I've, I've really got to give it to Jimmy here, you know. Like, for all his, his reputation as a hardcore rock and roll guitarist, he really does swallow all out-of-control ego here and instead gives the 100% album-accurate version of the solo that his predecessor, Henry, never quite did. Like, there are a few extra flourishes towards the end here, but it doesn't matter by that point. He's already nailed the sound. The tone is spot-on and... It's just marvellous. It really is. But yeah, I've spoken about Maybe I'm Amazed ad nauseum on this podcast. Uh, do I really go into this again? Yeah, look, I've never cared for this one live. But that's just because Paul's never done it the same as the original record. He's never done it to the same quality and he's never quite sung it the same way. Like, in the way that the Rolling Stones have never played Satisfaction properly since the day they recorded it, either by playing it too fast or too slow or singing it in a slightly different time signature. Paul does that here, and I get it that, you know, the live performance is a completely different beast and it's not what you get with the album, but since this is such a signature song, it just irks me that he's never done it the right way just once <laughs> though I think if I have to be objective here uh, if, 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 I, if I drop all of my baggage and be objective I can recognise that this is unequivocally uh, the number one live performance of this song there is no second place when it comes to maybe I'm amazed Maybe one amazed dids here. Uh, maybe you could argue some of the ones during the Wings Over Europe uh, tour, maybe, perhaps. Uh, but the quality of the recording you get here, uh, Jimmy just absolutely nailing it on this take as well. You know, it's as close as I get to the original album, and for that, I do appreciate it. I know I'm getting hung up on it, folks, and, and it's a, a stupid little stickler for me, but it's just the way I feel. Oddly, though, this is five minutes and 20 seconds long. I'm just going to go on uh, Wikipedia and Discogs just to quickly cross-reference that. Maybe I'm amazed. 
man looks up something on computer for the episode. Uh, this isn't to fill time either, folks, actually. I would just, um, yes, the original is 349. Uh, oh, well, on Wikipedia it says it's 511, but that's still very long for a single. That really is. Uh, Discogs. I love Discogs, folks. Like, I, I am intimidated by it as like this all-encompassing source of uh, internet music knowledge and trades and stuff. Like, I've never gone, in, gone, in, gone into that, but it's so useful for uh, research. Come on, quickly! The song's gonna end. This is long. Five seventeen. Okay, all all the sources are different. Uh, clearly, it's all over the place. But yeah, that was another version of maybe I'm amazed for me to sit through on this podcast. I'm glad I survived. I'm glad you have as well. And now onto the crown jewel of this treasure trove of a single release with our B side, which, as any earthy sod knows, is soily. Already, folks, this is Chalk and Cheese. This is my idea of a Wings song, specifically a B-side. This is already the superior track, as far as I'm concerned. Right away, we can see that this is where the band are going to do something a little different here and cut loose a little more than Paul usually allows on stage. And we're going to see them just simply rock out like the scrappy little band they first were when Wings hit the stage and, and when this was a regular part of the set list. This is what, you know, the ultimate throwback to an earlier era. It's almost like Paul's giving us a little taster as to what Wings were like, you know, before they were cool uh, and giving this new uh, wider audience a little peek into that world. Like, you know, you did miss out on it, but th- this is kind of what it sounded like. And oh, we are just getting that classic, frantic energy of that early Wings era. Oh, just being done on this platform as well is just such a fun contrast for me as a Paul fan. <laughs> such a fun Easter egg, isn't it? Like, it really is a commendable feat as well for football to be able to recreate this early Wings energy so well when he was originally doing it in much smaller venues, uh, you know, large town halls and stuff like that. And now he's still giving us that same potent musical stimuli, you know, making us as feral as we would be in a much smaller venue, but in these giant American stadiums. Oh, so fucking good, isn't it? <laughs> so yeah, we all know this track goes all the way back to with the uh, Wings of Europe. And it was incredibly awesome that Paul kept it as part of the set list. Um, so much of the original Wings of the World set list um, had even more references to the early part of Wings, of course, but a lot of it got uh, cut out for Wings at the Speed of Sound material, but this is one of the ones that stayed, and I'm so glad Paul picked this one. It's such a good closer for the album, it's such a good closer for the set. You know, there's nothing else like this in the show, and it's nice to leave the audience on this rock and roll high. Like the, you know, that wins on this big rock and roll force to be reckoned with, and 
you know, just 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 to leave people dazzled. Oh, this stuff is just fucking great. You know, I know I've like had a a pop at like Jet and like mentioned the phrase subpar pub rock in the past, and people might say, well, why do you love this instead? And, I don't know, this just has a resonance with me. It just gets me fired up in a way that Jet never does. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, folks, the inclusion of this song on this release is the only reason why I'd be interested in having it, specifically. Uh, I know most people would be interested in finally having Maybe I'm Amazed, but it's not the Maybe I'm Amazed I'm particularly interested in, but ooh, Getting Soily, a track that actually wasn't available to um, people who didn't attend uh, wing shows or buy bootlegs at that point, this was like a cut from the original like two-hour version of Red Bull Speedway. Possibly, you know, it, it was it was definitely an early set. This song that was never available available before, and the fact that it's here on this B side is quite lucrative to me, and it's particularly alluring as well, especially if. You might not have been able to afford the triple disc behemoth that was the Wings Over America live album. Like, oh, thanks, Paul. Uh, at least I can have Soily. Also, um, oh my god, again, this is another last song from an album uh, appearing on a single. There is a, a definite pattern with Paul going on here. I don't know what is going on here. Something I do want to point out as well Paul's bass playing on this song as well as the sound and tone of his bass on this track is is so unique. It's so heavy and borderline like thrashy. It, it's uniquely chugging and lurching and like the trebles turned all the way up. It's very flary, flourishy and showy. And then there may be like a, a little bit of echo and delay in there. And it makes for one of the most fun Paul is still the bassist moments in his career. Like, it's the perfect synthesis between pop-boiler bass lines of Get Back and Jet with his more elaborate ones, uh, one of which we'll obviously be discussing later. But, like, oh, come on, folks, just listen to this. Come on. Oh, go on, Paul. Rip your throat out, son. Oh. And we get the release there, the, the post-coital release. You can turn over to your partner and go, Whew, was that good for you? I'm going to have a cigarette. Progressing ever onwards, everyone, we now come to what else but Mo of Kintyre, a.k.a. the biggest UK single of all time, at the time, uh, it was released on the 11th of November 1977 and rather fittingly, rather predictably, the sleeve artwork is from the UK release. This is of course the big one in terms of Wings releases. There is no other one to compare it to in terms of success and whilst financial commercial success isn't everything, at the end of the day, it really is, is what keeps the wheels turning. And <laughs> despite being no one's supposed favourite track by the band, the sales figures do indeed tell a different story. This entirely non-international, very uh, UK-sounding song with seemingly 
no appeal beyond its borders, went to number one in Australia, Austria, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, Ireland, New Zealand, South Africa, and Switzerland, as well as number two in Norway and number five in Spain, along with its infamous flop on the charts at number 45 in America. Here in the UK, though, things start getting a little silly. It was technically the country's favourite song ever. As it became a Christmas number one single. But not just for like the week of December 25th or anything like that. It spent nine weeks at the top of the charts. And it went on to outsell She Loves You as the UK's top-selling single, uh, keeping that legacy for seven years until it was knocked off by uh, Do They Know It's Christmas, uh, the Band-Aid thing. And does this country remember that legacy at all? Not at all. Do we give Paul any credit or acknowledgement for proving that he could be and technically was for a moment more popular and more successful than the Beatles? Of course not. This song is borderline forgotten in this country as a cultural landmark and it receives no love on rock stations or in any of the publications. It's merely a trivia piece and a curio for people and for the singles charts. Though that being said, the irony is that As far as I'm concerned, um, in the way that Man in the Mirror was the song that was played when Michael Jackson died, if there was a solo song that would in turn receive a lot of radio play here in the UK, again, with a little irony, it would be this song. Although, as we have mentioned before, when Paul passes, it will be his Beatles songs, not solo songs that will ring out over the airwaves and the internet. But yeah. Folks, as we start building towards the climax of this song, Paul, Linda and Danny are just going to really start belting it out here. And it's such an interesting vocal harmony in terms of wings for me because, in, you know, this is the era of things like um, silly love songs, London Town, uh, <laughs> with a little luck. And yet here, we're going to go for something much more reminiscent of like the Ringo harmonies I'd carry that weight and it just creates this warm familial feeling and the inherent charm is just so palpable it cannot be ignored this is so inspiring and heartwarming and the heartstrings are just being plucked and oh again you just feel proud to be British even if you're not. <laughs> oh, a little bit of awe, a little bit of nostalgia for this stony heart here. It's always nice. Though I really should perk up for this next B-side grabs you by the scruff of your neck and does not let go. This is, this is also the song actually where my opinion has changed on it most recently. Of course, it is girls' school. And this song is one of redemption for me, uh, or perhaps ignorant and misjudgment in terms of my own original opinion. 
But yeah, let's just say, even with my past ignorances, I'm now a full, over-the-top convert to this song. It is the exact hard rocker that Wings needed at this point in their career. But unfortunately, it was probably too little too late, and it was buried as a B-side. Actually, this got a lot of play in the States and is known a lot more there, you know, that this is the signature rocker of this period in the States. But for the rest of the world, this has kind of been unfortunately forgotten, which is such a shame because, you know, this is such a fun, refreshing hard rocker in the McCartney discography. We don't get um, many guitar-centric, ever ever rare, straight-up guitar riff kind of songs like this and they should be treasured for the jewels in the crown that they are what I like about this song in my own weird personal way though is that it proves that Paul really is non-cancellable oh god Sam you're not talking about politics in the Paul McCartney podcast are you no look look hear me out what I mean is in terms of like general cancel culture um and like maybe setting aside the fact that Paul is an institution and he's technically too big to fail Uh, But what I'm saying is, when Paul writes kind of supposedly salacious or lurid lyrics, even if they could be uh, negatively or uncharitably dissected by the most fervid SJW types, you'd still end up with stuff that is so inoffensive and dorky and unproblematic that it actually ends up being quite adorable. Like, there is just nothing Paul can do to ever actually put himself in a bad position, except maybe poor title choicing on McCartney 2. You know, he can't do the sexy, salacious, bad boy stuff. The song Bad Boy really isn't the truth, folks. He is the cute Beatle, whether he likes it or not. Uh, And any attempts at being cheeky or button pushy just end up as being cute we know his personal life and his sensibilities so well that he just comes across as a kid at school trying to look cool by smoking cigarettes or something like you know he sings a song about going down on his wife it's cute he sings a song about you know this kind of sexy naughty girl school it's just cute um, you know he could he could sing songs about shagging 18-year-olds on cocaine whilst Linda's not there, and we'd still just be like, oh, poor you little cutie pie. Oh, aren't you adorable? He just can't do that kind of thing. And there is a certain point when he realises that and his self-awareness becomes a little more innate and he starts to have fun with that image and you get songs like Fur You. Now, if Helen Wheels was the song from the Band on the Run sessions that was a fantastic portent of things to come on the album ahead, I'd argue that Girls' School is most similar to the material found on London Town than the A-side. Like, yeah, there is a strong uh, acoustic folky element on London Town, but the unique guitar uh, sound and tone that we get here and the rock-solid, angelic backing vocals that we get all over this song, uh, and even you know some of the uh, racy lyricism that we'll find on Famous Groupies and I've Had Enough, 
uh, are all uh, real exemplaries of London town. So I guess the Americans, in their adoption of this song, actually had the best run-in and lead-up to that album. On to our next main A-side now, and we have the first of three London Town singles, a.k.a. With A Little Luck. It came out on the 20th of March, 1978, and the sleeve artwork for the 7-inch singles box was for the German release. Yes, everyone, we are indeed doing more London Town content. I feel like I've, I've spoken about this album and Back to the Egg, a lot lately I guess that's just a side effect of doing the Listen With Sam side series though with this one with the singles we are at least being able to cover songs that we haven't been able to talk about on Listen With Sam we might even overtake the podcast in general I think that would be quite interesting if we got to cover some post driving rain material before I even get to uh, Chaos and Creation in the backyard But yeah, fortunately, there is something still unique uh, enough to talk about with this inclusion on this box set. I don't have to go straight into my with a little look anecdote here. And yes, this is what's known as the DJ edit rather than a single edit. And I checked, I went on Discogs, and there were certain releases that do have DJ on the discs. And even the wiki article for the single is described as being a promotional radio edit. So it seems that the focus with this single specifically was getting it down to more of a palpable radio length, more than, say, getting it down to a length that was most suitable for a 7-inch. Like, maybe they could have just fit it all on a 7-inch, but they didn't want to release that, they didn't want that being the product in everyone's mind, so this was what they put out instead. It seems quite unimportant, but I think it's quite an interesting uh, distinction in release strategy. You know, seeing McCartney and MPL focus on uh, radio play and making that like public knowledge on the release, I just find that kind of interesting, and it may very well be just a random use of words, but I feel like the difference between a single edit and a DJ edit is that a single edit, in my mind's eyes, seems to be a bit more of a definitive version or of an official version, whereas the DJ version is like the more palpable commercial one for the regular plebs, you know, the shorter version, go buy the album uh, to listen to it properly, that kind of thing. Um, I can't believe I've actually managed to talk about this whole uh, issue over the whole song. But that is because this version is indeed so goddamn short. I mean, this one is 3 minutes 13, and the original version, uh, I believe, what is it, 5.44, 5.47, something like that. So that really is a massive cut. Um but we don't have any more time to talk about that, folks, because we are now on to the obligatory double song arrangement for this episode in Backwards Traveller slash Cufflink. And it's nice to finally be listening to some content that actually sounds like it actually should be classic B-side material. What's even nicer is that I don't even mean that in a negative way, just that it just feels right at home. 
Of course, this first half is Backwards Traveller, which, as far as McCartney song fragments go, is certainly one of the catchiest out there. Uh, it has a cracking sense of immediacy when it starts. There's some ace harmonies. And I think the image of wailing on the moon has always been an evocative one. Yeah, it always resonated with me. Although I'm pretty sure the animated series Futurama would go on to have a... Uh, to go on to uh, have a very similar idea about 22 years later. And that's it. Is that it? Just, just one minute ten. And then, yeah, with that, we go right into the cufflink part of the song. It has the lion's share twice the length. Wow. But, yeah. I'm going to get this out of the way. With a little look is the zenith of synthy Paul McCartney. You know, Paul was doing a lot of synth in this period. He was experimenting with it a lot in 76 and 77. And yet, when it comes to stuff he actually put out, uh, Cufflink was amongst that, and it is the Nadir. You know, on London Town, you have the best and worst of McCartney's synth, which I find to be quite interesting. I'm sorry, but I've never dug this one. I've always thought it was a bit jarring in terms of its sound and production. And the only memory I really have of it is when my guest, uh, Morris Bozitsky, uh, came on for the London Town episode all those years ago and uh, him talking about how much this song reminded him of like 70s London crime dramas like The Long Good Friday with Bob Hoskins. These are fun for what they are, quote-unquote, you know, they are throwaways that made it somehow onto the album, and they certainly have a charm to them, but I'd probably like them more if they would just be sides on the album and maybe had made way for girls' school, maybe get rid of children children as well. Um, I do like the idea of putting two little mini songs or vignettes back to back, but again, it does feel more like B-side stuff unless you're doing a more... Uh, expansive and elaborate McCartney medley uh, I can't help but just feel like this is amongst the most slight material in the in the entire canon um, but speaking of quite naff we can come to our next single release I know you've all had enough of this episode at this point but come on we're nearly, we're nearly there now with I've had enough this was released on the 16th of June 1978 and the sleeve for the artwork in this box set is yet another version from the UK. Hashtag no biases. What can I say, folks? This song is... It's admittedly fun in a kind of goofy way, but it really does scream... Mediocre McCartney rocker. That's just what it is. Like other songs I've spoken about on this series, um, I would not mind at all if this was like a local band playing this song in a local pub. You know, it's it's pleasant enough in that sense. It's chirpy. It has that kind of uh, adorable McCartney trying to act tough shtick that I've mentioned before, and that's always worth a few laughs. And I'd never say I, I hated this one, but... It's certainly towards the bottom of the pile of songs that I don't hate. Also, don't hate is certainly uh, different than like. So, you know, the best I can say is that I don't mind tolerating it. And that took an awful long time to say. 
This is it's certainly the simplest thing on London Town, and I'm going to say it, not in a good way. Uh, you know, this is really the black sheep of the bunch in terms of scope and ambition. It's got none of the synthy weirdness or kooky folksy stuff that makes up the rest of the album. And while something like Morse Moose and the Grey Goose is indeed a rocker, it's suitably strange and synthy and grandiose. Whereas this is the worst kind of Paul McCartney song that could be on any other Paul McCartney project in that it's so generic and boring. Usually that phrase means a song has a certain classic timelessness, but here it's for the most uninventive, uninspired, uninspiring and predictable McCartney composition ever. I honestly don't think there's too much of an assumption on my part here in guessing that this was written last minute in a mad dash to add some much needed rock and roll to the album. Like, if it was any other less than stellar rocker on the album, I doubt I would be deriding it as incessantly as I am here, but this is just so by the book and run of the mill that I'm convinced that this had to have been hastily constructed with only minutes left on the clock. It's like, okay, this'll do. There's a very, you know, slapdash, I guess that will do for now quality to this one. You know, this is on an album with a straight up rock and roll Elvis pastiche, and yet this is still more generic than that. Ugh. I mean, come on, folks. There's just nothing interesting about this song besides the fact that Lawrence Juba and Steve Holly feature in the music video despite not appearing on the track. And coming on to what is obviously another, though it really didn't have to try hard to be, superior B-side in this set. This is Deliver Your Children. And my word, is this ever the better release here, everyone? Like, well done, Denny. You've done it. You finally have a release where you've got something better than what Paul put out there. Enjoy it while it lasts. That's all I'll say. Now, I was going to come out swinging for Denny here and declare that this is easily the joint contender for the best Denny Lane composition during his tenure with Wings alongside uh, Time to Hide. Uh, Because when compared to, you know, his other kind of contributions... Uh, they don't really have that kind of strength of melody or the clarity of vision uh, that, that this and Time to Hide does have. However, I then found out that Paul actually has a co-write on this song, just just like No Words, which is a co-write, and uh, Spirits of Ancient Egypt, which is all Paul. The Denny Lane legacy seems to be shrinking further and further the more I actually bother to look into these songs a little further. But yeah, the most interesting thing about this song is that it's also on an album which has his worst song as well. Uh, Both also have children in the title, which is kind of odd. But then when you consider, uh, consider the fact that Denny was stuck on a boat with his boss, his boss's pregnant wife and their kids, you can see where the inspiration would have come from as well as the reasoning why Paulie may have, quote-unquote, allowed this to be the B-side in the first place. Now, something I want to talk about this time around is the fact that I've never really dissected these lyrics properly. But hey, no time like the present. So, what is Denny actually singing about here? Well, as it turns out, folks, and brace yourselves for this one, 
This might actually be one of the most religious and spiritual songs in the entire Wings canon. Yeah, I know, right? Because they, they never really touched on God in their tenure, except for, like, a mention in Give Ireland Back to the Irish. But yeah, I don't see how I didn't mention this as more of a divine offering before, because it certainly is. We start off with the first verse, with very biblical images of rain, floods and mud, um, before the main character starts to pray for, and I quote, the Lord to come a help in. Uh, that's all about faith. Then you have the second verse, where you have the washing machine woman getting dirty all over town, and, and unfaithfulness, and so there's like a duality there, there's a more complex theme developing. And then the third verse, which is a double-length one, is about a man with a gun going to the car dealership, which seems to be less on theme, but then he ties it all back around with the, well, I ain't no devil, and I ain't no saint, which means none of this can be coincidence. And, of course, you know, you have the chorus, which is deliver your children, and to deliver someone is not in the postal service sense here, but instead to, you know, deliver them from evil, as per the quote in the Lord's Prayer. You know, the shining light of the day and the night also sounds very much like the Christian God. And so, after all of that, I've been not led, but just forced to draw the conclusion that maybe this whole song is about like the constant war between good and evil, faith and losing one's faith. It's that kind of bluesy, rock and roll, folksy topic that really does seem up Denny Lane's alley. You know, it certainly fits. Oh, go on, Denny. I'd like to say play us out, Denny, but, you know, I think people would assume the episode is coming to a close. Wish you... We're getting a few songs left to go. Killer tune. Killer. Okay, folks, we're on to the final stretch now, really, as we come to the last single from the London Town album. And wouldn't you know, it's another title track. This came out on the 26th of August, 1978. And despite the song being set in London and this box set's propensity for uh, having UK album artwork, the box set... Uh, had clearly had enough of that <laughs> and this is from the Netherlands sadly folks this is the start of the lengthy era whereby the third single onwards for any McCartney album is one that is not going to be bought en masse and I do feel for the band because they clearly put a lot of work into this one um, it's just it didn't pay off. It didn't do well at all. With this one only getting to number 60 in the UK, number 43 in Canada, and 39 in America. Okay, so technically it was a top 40 hit in the US, and it fared better on stuff like the US Easy Listing Chart with a more solid position of number 17. And... Again, this isn't a complete disaster in the way that he would have to learn to deal with in just under a decade's time. But it is an exceptional step down when compared to the last three albums. And you know things are bad when you're being compared to Wings at the Speed of Sound in a negative light. Yeah, this definitely damaged egos and uh, prophesied the pocketbooks in equal measure. 
This is also the start of the McCartney era. Well, I think I said this earlier, actually, but uh, this might be a continuation where he's being etched largely against his own will into the great stone walls of the dreaded adult, contemporary and easy listening charts. Somewhere he's going to have to get comfortable and fast. Though I would argue that Paul's resistance to becoming a middle-aged artist with middle-aged fans is actually what inspired him to create and experiment with some of his best work in the 80s and 90s. So maybe we do need a few London towns here and there. Not too many, though, because, as I'm sure many of you know, this is not one that I'm fond of at all. It might be the weakest title track of any McCartney album... It's just, it's just not my kind of shtick. This is definitely a precursor to the kind of McCartney music that I don't like in the 80s, like Once Upon a Long Ago and uh, No More Lonely Nights. There's definitely a through line there. And, you know, I should be all over a song like this, or at least how it's described, you know. Loads of uh, classic Wings harmonies, Paul at his synthy peak, a fun guitar solo. Uh, all of this works in theory, but none of it connects with me. And that's just because it's all just a bit, a bit drab and dull. Like it feels like it's the rear cover of London Town when it's actually the, the kind of boring black and white front cover. I don't know what people find so endearing about this one. The melodies tried, uh, the lyrics struggle to have any uh, meaning or weight to them at all. Um, you know, there's there's some cute vocals like like we have here, and you know, this little harmony at the end is is is, is fun. But God, it's it's a terrible way to kick off the album, and an awful idea for a single as well. I mean, who would buy this? I mean, there's 20 of you out there right now screaming, Sam, I was there. I went out and bought this and I feel very sorry for you. Bye. Right. And after that, we come to a song that is so slight that I kind of wonder whether it's even worthy of being a B-side. At least, you know. Uh, of course, this is I'm Carrying the somewhat lesser sibling in the hallowed annals of McCartney acoustic finger pickers. Uh, I don't believe this would be in anyone's top five in that category. And I'm sure Donovan wouldn't have been too impressed with this one. The guitar work and picking is noticeably uh, simple and repetitive for Paul. Normally he's a bit more explorative and experimental here. Like, in terms of the McCartney acoustic pickers, again, as far as I'm concerned, this is one that does sound like he kind of just dusted it off quite quickly aboard the Fair Carol. Um, you know, I, th I, th I think we're relying a little too much on the strings here. Like, are we trying to ape yesterday here? Because if, if so, none of the same effects are, are landing here. I mean, I'm, I'm just feeling generic McCartney all over this, you know? And yeah, I know a load of you out there love this one as well. Again, not amongst your ranks. I do enjoy this tender, gentle spirit it has. And the vocal melody is quite...
quite cute in its own way. And of, of course, Paul's voice is as lush and romantic as ever. But come on, folks, this is pretty by the numbers, right? Now, this negativity may be down to my exposure to the aforementioned uh, Morris Spazitsky from the London Town episode. Now, actually, now that I think about it, it's not even a maybe, it's a fact. Uh, his take on this song was so strong that it did kind of uh, have this uh, lasting effect on me where I could never really see the song the same way again. It was like when you see one of those visual illusions, then you can't see it the other way again. Uh, you can't go back to how it was before. And everything I've just said is basically just a parrot of what he said. But the main point that really stuck with it him and stuck in his craw and that I always found funny was he found it very disappointing narratively that McCartney was building up to I'm carrying something and whilst that could be seen as like a great bit of like uh, McCartney keeping it plain and simple and generic so that anyone can like apply whatever they want to it but he was just very upset with the lack of specificity uh, or resolution there and I have to I have to end that, folks, because we are already several seconds into another one of the big ones from tonight. Uh, for our second to last big single, we shift over to another phase of Wings' career now. This is Goodnight Tonight. This is a milestone of a song, and it came out on the 23rd of March, 1979. And the artwork used for the box set is from the French release. Oh, yeah, everyone. This is some more of the good stuff. This is real, uh, a high point for me. This is easily one of the top songs from this episode, from Wings' discography, and from Paul's discography altogether, including The Beatles. Yeah, I am going there, folks. And I don't think it's too insane to say that the best of Paul's solo work is up there with The Beatles, but is it too far to say that Goodnight Tonight is in that esteemed list with things like, you know, Maybe I'm Amazed and Silly Love Songs? Yeah, that kind of shtick. Now, originally in my notes, this was the part where I said that Goodnight Tonight is better than the worst McCartney Beatles songs. But then I realised that uh, besides The Long and Winding Road, I don't actually dislike any Paul McCartney Beatles songs enough for that analogy to work. So, okay, at a push, I'll say that definitively, Goodnight Tonight is certainly better than Every Little Thing or Oh Darling or Tell Me What You See or Honey Pie. You know, the ones that I really don't connect with all that much. But is it up there in the top five or top ten? Good question. But it, it, it is easily in my top 25 things McCartney has ever done. Uh, I feel like I've brought the uh, level down a, a bit there, but, you know, this is definitely my top 25 of McCartney, maybe even top 10. But Sam, why is it so good? Well, it has everything that I wish was more on Back to the Egg. And don't get me wrong, I do not dislike Back to the Egg, and I do like a nice non-album single that is different from the, the final product, like you know, Helen Wheels. But I am also one of those people who actually prefers the non-rock and roll stuff on Back to the Egg. And so when I'm presented with a song like Goodnight Tonight that contains an effortlessly layered and blended mix of disco, funk, dance music, pop and Spanish world music, as you can hear there, all with that signature McCartney spin to it, then I'm just so much more inherently interested in that than just some hard rocker. 
And yes, whilst I always bemoan Paul for not doing more hard rockers, uh, when presented with an album of this kind of shtick, I'm back to the egg. I'm still going to lean towards the weirdest stuff like Goodnight Tonight and Arrow Through Me and Winter Rose Love Awake. That's more me. I mean, this is easily the apex of the Back to the Egg sessions. You know, it's the most complex, emotive and well-produced piece. And I think a lot of that has to do in the way it was recorded. Of course, as you know, Macca was like, let's all write a song over the weekend, everyone, and we'll record the best one as a single. And of course, Paul decided that his one was the best, the rest is history. But what I think is important here is the spontaneity of the whole thing. Like, so much of the Back to the Egg sessions go all the way back to the piano tapes in 1974 or home demos in 76. And instead, what we have with this song is something that was thought up on the Saturday, written on the Sunday, and recorded on the Monday. And so... I know that it will certainly have been a much more exciting prospect for Paul to laser focus his attention on rather than digging up some old tapes from the past just to stock up a new album because he's not able to come up with some new stuff for the new players as fast as he'd like. You know, this song actually got Paul fired up in a way that I don't think a lot of the rest of Back to the Egg did. And it shows... Uh, yeah... What an amazing song, what an emotional song, what a journey. Can I put it in my top five, maybe? I don't know. Oh, but first, but first everyone, with the end of Goodnight Tonight, it means we can indulge in another of those Wings B-sides that remind you that you can never skip what's on the other side of these discs, lest you miss out on some real gold, a uh, pure gold in Paul's case, and that 24 karat stuff today comes in the form of daytime, nighttime suffering. Once again folks, I must just go ooh yeah. Because once again we have another McCartney B side that is as good as, if not, better than the A side. And when the A side is something that I'm already putting in my McCartney top 25, top 10, you know how good this is. And Paul just knocks it out the park here, folks. Oh, my God. Uh, what what a brilliant collection this is. What a valuable uh, release this is. You know, neither of these two songs end up on the final album, and they're both better than anything that would appear on Back to the Egg. I can say that quite confidently and definitively, folks. And, you know, it just ensures that this was going to sell well. Um... You know, not not when it was released as a single, but it meant Wings fans in the future were always going to pick up one of these because you can't miss out on Goodnight Tonight and Daytime Nighttime Suffering. I, I found them both far too late into my McCartney fandoms, particularly Daytime Nighttime Suffering. It was like me and say Old Brown Shoe with the Beatles, but um, oh, it's so rewarding when you discover this song because it's indisputably one of Paul's best. I mean, of course, it's part of that coveted trilogy of McCartney songs where he talks about women. Um, I mean, of course, we covered Another Day in the first episode of this side series, and we recently talked about Eleanor Rigby in the Revolver Boxer episode. And so now, fittingly, we have this third one. And I can't believe, even listening to it now, just how insightful and empathetic Paul really is being here. Like, for a man who was born in the 50s and who you'd think would have a kind of old world view on women, like, he's so progressive here. 
like more so than many modern men. And for him to show such thought and consideration for people with a different experience to him just shows how wonderful of a man Paul really is at the end of the day, folks. You know, someone who is emotionally stunted or, you know, laser focused on being a businessman could not write a song like this. Uh, before we, before we come to the end, I should say I actually showed my mum this song the the other day. Uh, we, we, we was talking about another day, and then Emma Rigby came up, and then so fittingly, I thought I had to fill her in on this one. And unfortunately, it didn't uh, connect with it immediately. But still, we enjoyed listening to Emma Rigby and uh, another day together. That was fun. All right, folks, here we are with our final single of this episode. Yeah, it would have been nice if it had worked out uh, evenly, where we could have put a bow on all of the Back to the Egg material. But hey, I want to do all these episodes and have them be reasonably the same length. So it works out with us ending on Old Siam, sir. Now, I do have somewhat of a bone to pick with any album that relies on album tracks for either its A or B sides. But that's not the case with the Back to the Egg material, especially with this release. You know, this is the last ditch effort on the part of Paul to see if this Wings experiment can be revamped and started anew one more time. And so if you want to convince people you have a new sound for your mainline album, then you want to You'd have to plug some of the album on those singles, you know. Good Night Tonight and Daytime Nighttime Suffering isn't selling as many copies of Back to the Egg uh, as it should, because obviously Back to the Egg is meant to be this big rock, uh, new wave, post-punk album, supposedly. So you're going to have to do something like this, where you have an A-side and a B-side that are rockers, and you really don't see that with Wings material all that often. Um, but yeah, what I like so much about this release is that not only is it a fresh start after London Town, but it's also pretty much a, a fresh start from that last single. Like I, 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 Again, Good Night Tonight isn't really a part... It, it's those sessions, but it doesn't really represent the album. Um, I mean, it, it does far less so than, say, Mulligan Tire and Girls' School does for London Town. But what we're being told about the new album here on these album singles is very simply conveyed. You know, the instrumentation, the tone, the energy, the vocals, the overall sound. Uh, it's all completely different from what we've heard before and totally accurately sells what they want us to think this album is going to be. Does all of Back to the Egg sound like this? No. But, you know, half, two-thirds of it does, so that, that's that's good enough. Now, I, I was also uh, tempted to say that this is a, a single that features a rare McCartney guitar riff, but, uh, well, well, this is the guitar solo right now, but the main one, the... Uh, da, 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 that's not a guitar riff. That actually falls, presumably, to Linda and her keyboard line. Uh, actually, well, no, definitely, because Linda plays it on the demo with Paul back in 76, so she likely knows this song inside and out. Um, 
So it probably is her on the final record. But yeah, that riff, that keyboard line, um, it surely is something, isn't it? I'm not saying it's up there with Turning Japanese by The Vapors, or Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's, or even Macca's own Asiatic gaffe with the original title for Frozen Japanese. But as the last nearly 50 years have progressed, that kind of musical sting is now considered to be a little gauche and rude, and I bet that MPL probably won't be using it for any promotional material in an upcoming archive collection release. Oh my god, this part of the song is so good. This this sort of step up in energy. It it it's a shame he wouldn't be able, he's not able to like sustain this kind of you know drive for the entire song. I think that would that that would have been a little more interesting than this kind of swampy groove part of the song. But hey, it's a fun track. It's a fun A side. Oh. And now this is the end of the end, pun intended, as we move on to Spin It On. Ironically, this is the last of our vinyls of this episode. Uh, sorry, Paul, we're not going to be spinning it on. Um, but yeah, in terms of making a statement about the intentions of the direction of the band and what the public is going to think this album is going to be about, again, this release is incredibly powerful. Again, possibly a little too little too late, But the fact that this is the ever-rare wing single where both A and B sides are rockers and hard ones at that, especially at this point in their career, really can't be understated. This is Wings doing a bit of that emergency reset in terms of their image, and Spin It On is the song that seals that deal. Wings are apparently now a rock band again, and so maybe it is worth checking out that new album. It's so genius on paper. Um, because, unfortunately, the people that would be turned on by this single and this B-side uh, would be greeted by an album that really only kind of half fulfills that promise. There's a lot of other weird McCartney-esque stuff on there. Um, yeah, it, it, it's been a bit of a, of a, a double-edged sword, really. Uh, I mean, the fans, us, we're still going to really love it, especially because it's rockets and we'll, we'll take what we can get. But... Um, the business move seems to be a lot more about the short term than the long term, I guess. But, but maybe these execs don't think about singles the way I'm presenting anyway, I'm probably just overthinking. Uh, before we mention, uh, I do have to just talk about the fact that this is arguably the Paul McCartney song with the most indecipherable lyrics. Uh, yeah, you know, secret friend. Uh, is is definitely longer, but I've definitely seen people's attempts at figuring out those lyrics. I do have to be honest, though, folks. Um, whilst I appreciate what they were going for here, uh, this really isn't my bag when it comes to Back to the Egg. Again, I like that weirder stuff. And Spin It On To Me feels awfully close to I've Had Enough, in terms of like Paul kind of just doing emergency rock and roll at the last minute and it feeling quite disingenuous, I'm gonna say. Uh, I guess I have to make that my final point. I'm not gonna talk about the song anymore because we are finished. That is the end of part two of Listen With Sam, Paul McCartney, The Seven Inch Singles. Yes, we are working our way through steadfastly. We've still got 
a long way to go and it's going to take us an extremely long time especially with all of the other episodes we have to do and what if I do a regular listen with Sam episode is that going to throw it all out of whack I don't know we'll have to see what happens in the future but hey I've had a lot of fun revisiting all of these songs with you I hope you've had a lot of fun revisiting these songs with me and I apologise for the wait uh, for this episode folks it's been a long time coming I know but I've actually been working on quite a lot of other episodes there's probably going to be a big dumb very soon where I'm just going to have to release the glut but thank you all for waiting this has been another episode of Poor or Nothing my name has been Sam Wiles your host peace and love peace and love Harry Harry Krishna no more autographs peace and love peace and love where's that thing? Every night, things you